When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from American Media for saints and sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church in our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. Two weeks in Rome. That's hard to believe. In our first day of rain since we've gotten here. Yeah, so there is that, and you haven't killed me yet. <laughs> nope. <laughs> if you could see what we look like right now, it's kind of ridiculous. There's a pillow between Zach and I, I know. to help with the sound. Help with but... the sound, not with the—you <laughs> haven't tried to punch me across the no. table yet. Yes, no, yes, a little barrier. <laughs> uh, we have a great show this week. I'm really excited to share this conversation. Yeah, we certainly do. We're talking to Father Olivier Poquillon. He is a Dominican priest and the director of the École Biblique in Jerusalem, and this is the oldest biblical and archaeological research center in the Holy Land. He was just recently appointed this past summer, so it's a big role. That's right. And we actually talked to him a lot about his time in Iraq, where he was the pastor of a church in Mosul that had been destroyed by ISIS. And so, I mean, he's got some really incredible stories from that time. Uh, he's here in Rome this month because he's on the Methodological Commission for the Synod on Synodality. Yes. And in Signs of the Times, we're going to give some updates on the war in Israel and Gaza, some news about the Pope, maybe having a friend down there. And we're also going to be talking about Pope Francis' new apostolic exhortation on Therese of Lisieux. But before we get to that, what's on tap this week, Ashley? We are drinking a nice Chianti that Sebastian picked out for us when we were out in Rome yesterday. That's right. Not just any Chianti, a Chianti Classico. Mm. So always good to go with the classic. All right. Cheers. But before we get to all that, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. So as you know, we are here in Rome covering the Synod on Synodality, which will have huge implications for the church around the world. And there's no better time to tell you about an upcoming conference at the University of San Diego that will explore what it means to be a Catholic college or university today. Yes, it's called Lighting the Way Forward, and it'll look at timely topics like climate change, structural racism, polarization, and the lack of trust in institutions. They're asking really honest questions that affect us all, just like they're doing here at the Synod. The conference will take place from January 11th to 13th, 2024. The speaker lineup is amazing. We've got Cardinal McElroy, he's a frequent writer in America and a friend of the podcast, Vincentian Father Dennis Holtschreider, who's president of the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, and our friend and colleague, Gloria Purvis, host of the Gloria Purvis podcast. For the complete lineup and to register for the Lighting the Way conference, visit their website at sandiego.edu slash lighting. That's sandiego.edu slash L-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. -G. 
And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And first, some news about Pope Francis and the ongoing conflict in Israel and Gaza. He revealed to a veteran Israeli TV journalist on Sunday that he has a, he said, companion, companion, a friend who might have been one of the victims of Hamas's attack in southern Israel on October 7th. That's right. The reporter is Henrik Simerman, who knew the Pope from the time Francis visited the Holy Land in 2014. He said that the Pope called him to express his closeness to him and to the Israeli people. And while they were having that conversation, uh, he told the Pope that there were many Argentines among the victims, to which Pope Francis replied, quote, I know, I know, and a companion of mine could surely have been among them. Right. And it's not clear if this person that the Pope knows was killed or taken hostage in Israel. The the belief is that he or she may be among the hostages being held in Gaza right now, but that has not yet been independently verified. Yeah, somewhat related, Cardinal Pier Battista Pizzaballa, who's the Latin patriarch of Jerusalem, told reporters that he would be willing to be exchanged for the Israeli children being held by Hamas in Gaza as hostages. Right. And you learned something on Sunday when you uh, went to the Angelus with Pope Francis. That's right. So uh, at Sunday's Angelus, uh, I was there. Pope Francis, after he'd given his reflection on the Sunday readings, called for a day of prayer and fasting for peace uh, as Israel's preparing a ground invasion into Gaza. We're recording this on Monday afternoon. He asked that humanitarian laws to be respected, especially in Gaza, where it is urgent and necessary to ensure humanitarian corridors and to come to the aid of the entire population. So you're listening to this, that day will have already passed, but still, I'm sure that your prayers will continue to be needed and they will still matter. So what's our next story, Zach? So this Sunday, Pope Francis published a new apostolic exhortation on St. Therese of Lisieux titled C'est la confiance. And those words come from uh, St. Therese's phrase, it's the confidence and nothing but confidence that must lead us to love. And so it's subtitled On Confidence and the Merciful Love of God. Yes. And in this letter, Pope Francis writes, at a time of great complexity, she can help us rediscover the importance of simplicity, the absolute primacy of love, trust, and abandonment. And that idea of love and humility really just pervade in the entire document. That, yeah, that's right. Uh, I have never really had a strong devotion to Therese. So uh, it was exciting for me to be able to just kind of learn a little bit about her as prompted by the Holy Father here. So Therese was born in France in 1873. She was a very pious child. She knew at the age of two that she wanted to become a nun. I thought that too, but you, you, <laughs> mostly you, because oh, yes. there was a group of uh, Marymount sisters uh, down the road and I wanted to be able to live close to my parents and have them do my laundry. You still can. That's still <laughs> possible, I think. So she uh, wanted to go to the monastery early. Eventually, the Pope waives the minimum age requirement. She enters at 15, but her time there is cut short. Yeah, and at least outwardly, her time at the Carmelite Monastery is is pretty uneventful. She lives a modest, normal life doing chores and praying. But then on Good Friday in 1894, she wakes up with blood in her mouth. And for the next three years, she would suffer very painfully with tuberculosis before dying of it at age 24. So it's during that time when she's suffering from tuberculosis that we get Therese's spiritual testimony. It's published after her death. It's titled The Story of a Soul. It's really popular right away and remains one of the most popular spiritual works in the Catholic Church. I, I still haven't read it, but um, Therese's, I know a lot of people who are very, very influenced by Therese. Yeah. And so she's often known as the little flower. She describes herself as a little flower in God's kingdom, a little daisy compared to the much more impressive roses in the garden. And she's also known for 
what she calls her little way of holiness that's centered on love and humility and mercy. And this is the example Pope Francis wants to lift up. Yeah, yeah. The idea of doing small things with great love. You know, Francis has loved to reflect on this idea of just like holiness in everyday life throughout his pontificate. So Francis is busy, even though there's a synod on synodality happening, he's still <laughs> releasing documents left and right. I always forget that Teresa Lusu is actually our colleague, Father James Martin's mm -hmm. favorite saint. It's not St. Ignatius. So I can't wait to talk to him about this. Yep. All right. Now stick around for our conversation with Father Olivier Poquillon. Joining us in Rome is Father Olivier Poquillon. Father Olivier is a Dominican priest and the director of the École Biblique in Jerusalem, which is the oldest biblical and archaeological research center in the Holy Land. He's also on the Commission for Methodology for the Synod on Synodality. Welcome to Jesuitical. Well, hello, hello. Thank you for making the long walk over here. It means <laughs> a lot to us to have you and your experience and your expertise to introduce our audience to another part of the world. I want to focus first on your time in Mosul. I'm wondering how the Dominicans got there in the first place. Well, it's a long story since uh, we started in the 13th century. Just after the foundation of the Dominican order, the Pope of that time sent a Dominican in a mission to try to see if there was a possibility to deal with the ruling power in Baghdad. And at that time, it was a Buddhist one. Mm -hmm. we, we don't believe it, but uh, those people came from the steppe in uh, the very far east, and they went across, and the Mongols, they arrived, and they rushed into the plain of Ninawa, and then followed the river, the Tiger River, mentioned in the Bible, and arrived to Baghdad. All right, you weren't kidding about this being a very long story. We're yeah, going, a very we're long going story, way back. But then when the local churches, because uh, you've got a wild diversity of local churches, joined uh, the full communion with the Pope, with the Catholic Church, they asked the Catholic Church to send uh, friars to help them. So those friars were Dominican ones who were uh, entrusted with the mission of uh, representing the Pope first and then uh, opening uh, schools, uh, opening hospitals, etc., a traditional mission. Then to understand the language of the people, because there is a wide diversity also of languages in this country, Arabic, Kurdish, Surat, that is Aramaic, the vernacular Aramaic for the daily life. And then they started establishing the first printing plant of Mesopotamia, where they printed the first Bible in Arabic, etc., etc. Oh, wow. So I guess what has been the maybe religious makeup of that region has it ever been majority Christian, or has it always been this area where there's a lot of religious diversity? How long time <laughs> do we have? Because it's a huge story. You see, according to the tradition, the Christianity arrived through uh, Apostle Thomas on his way to India. Mm. And uh, then they became uh, themselves preachers and went to China, up to China, where we found some inscriptions of uh, the first mention of Christ in Mandarin, the main Chinese uh, official language. Skipping ahead a few centuries, what about um, in the 20th century? What did the Christian population look like there? Okay, when I was first sent to Iraq, I arrived in 2003, and uh, people used to say that in the past there was one and a half million Christians in Iraq, in a country of more or less 20 millions at that time. 
But in 2003, there was already 400,000 and a half, maybe. And now some estimations... And 2003, that's the turning point, the invasion of Iraq by the United States? It was a very important point in the history of Iraq, but it wasn't the beginning of the diminution. How do you say that in English? Diminution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. of the number of Christians. Mm -hmm. We've got to remember that Iraq had to face uh, eight years of war against Iran. Then there was 13 years of embargo. Then there was the U.S. invasion. Then we had Al-Qaeda. Then uh, we had uh, ISIS. And here we are. <laughs> so you can understand why uh, when you are uh, trying to grow up your kids and to educate them and to have access to healthcare, etc., you can be tempted to uh, go elsewhere. So it's not only for the Christians, but the Christians had a better education and uh, usually higher living standards, and they had some facilities to go elsewhere. So this is what they did. So can you just give your timeline of, so you, you first went in 2003, were you in and out over the years? Yes, uh, you know, in religious life, you, you don't have only one job. You've sure. got uh, 10 or 12 at the same time, usually, mm -hmm. and your boss is saying, oh, since you have some time, uh, can I task <laughs> you with something else? <laughs> <laughs> so I was sent to Iraq in 2003 with two missions. Uh, one mission was to help the friars and the local churches for the recovery, the only problem was that there was no recovery. <laughs> and the second one was to teach at the Mosul University. So I spent two years, 2003-2004, teaching at Mosul University. I'm a lawyer. Nobody is perfect. I'm not a Jesuit <laughs> and a lawyer. So I've got, I'm That's a teacher. That's true. You get that going for you. Yeah. <laughs> but I had to teach French language, French literature, since it was less um, sensitive, politically speaking. Then violence was very high in old Mosul where I was living. Our priory is at the very heart of the old city. It is a crossroad, literally speaking, the crossroad of the two main streets of the old city. So even my uh, students who were uh, fighting with the guerrilla against the, the coalition at that time were not visiting us saying it's too dangerous. And the others were laughing at it saying it's too dangerous before, because of you. <laughs> so you're teaching students who are fighting in war. That, yes. That's remarkable. I war mean. was supposed to be over according to the US government. Uh, but we had fights day and night in the old city. And there was no report since uh, the, most of the journalists has been killed. Hmm. So, uh, yes, some of my students were fighting in, uh, on one side and some others on the other side. And some were fighting uh, on both sides. If you want to get married in the Middle East, you've got to pay something to your wife, your girlfriend, family. And you've got to pay also something for your mother sometimes if you want your mother to choose the right uh, person, <laughs> the person you love. So uh, the boy has to bring some money. So some were working for the U.S. troops on one side, but when their tribe was attacked or when there was uh, an offense against their tribe leaders, they had to fight with their brothers against their friends. So they were on both sides. And that was really uh, heartbreaking for some of them. And this is all before 2014 and the rise of ISIS? Oh, yes. It was a long time ago. It was, uh, this was in 2003, 2004. Okay. So the region has gone through just wave of wave of violence and fighting 
what was 2014 and after like for Mosul? Oh, it didn't start exactly in 2014. In 2014, they just entered Mosul and the region and took the region uh, without fighting so much. They didn't have to fight. They, they just bought some uh, prominent uh, figures who were controlling uh, some services and uh, some activities. So, uh, you know, Iraq is composed of uh, different groups. You've got uh, Shi'i in the south and uh, Sunni uh, Arabic uh, in, the, in the west, let's say. And then you've got some Sunni Kurdish in the north. And you've got Christians a little bit all over the place, but in very small uh, groups. So the Sunni were ruling the country under Saddam Hussein. And when Saddam was uh, overthrown. overthrown and then killed eventually, they felt humiliated and discriminated. And so they, they tried different solutions. But as none of them worked, when ISIS came, they thought, okay, let's try. Maybe it will not be worse. And then they discovered that it was, because they have been the first victim of it. But the Christian had a choice between uh, uh, converting to Islam, uh, paying the zakat, or uh, uh, running away with letting all of their belongings uh, on site. Then they changed the, the rule and they said, you've got to leave or to convert. And nearly all of the Christians left. Hmm. Including all the Dominicans? Yes. We had to go to Karakosh first. I wasn't there at that time. So the friars who were there had to go to Karakosh in the Nineveh plain. And then when ISIS approached, they had to run away to Erbil. So ISIS was expelled from Mosul. Yes, in, in 2017. And uh, so now we started in uh, 2019 uh, a program that is the flagship program of UNESCO. You know what is UNESCO? Mm -hmm. The UN Organization for Education, Science and Culture. So the flagship program of UNESCO is revive the spirit of Mosul. Because in Mosul we were living together. Living together in the same uh, very small neighborhood of the very center. You have the Great Mosque from uh, where al-Baghdadi, the, the leader of Daesh, proclaimed his so-called caliphate. You've got the convent of the Dominicans, so both have a tower, the minaret and the bell tower, and you had the, the synagogue. This is what Mosul was, and now we are rebuilding a mosque, a church, and a monastery. Can you tell the story of the church clock? I told you that Our Lady of the Hour, this is the name of the convent, has been the first school for girls and also the first center for training women teachers in Mesopotamia. It wasn't Iraq at that time. It was under the Ottomans, eh, the Turkish of today. Then the Empress of France, of the French people, Eugénie, the wife of Napoleon III, offered the first uh, clock and the bells. So she said, okay, there is one clock, one hour, but you can watch it uh, from the four different directions, north, south, east, west. There is only one God, one hour, one time given to us by God, and we are responsible of what we are doing, watching the clock from different point of views. If you watch the clock from a Muslim family or from a Christian family, when it's ringing, it can be a call to prayer for us, and it's just, it's... Oh, it's seven o'clock for the Muslims. Then this year, well, last year, we uh, renewed uh, this uh, system and installed a clock again and bells again. And the Muslim neighbors said, it's not loud enough. It should be stronger. <laughs> and we want the Angelus 
they didn't know that it was Angelus, but we want the morning, uh, midday, and evening prayer uh, to run because that is part of our life. This is part of our pride. So when I was saying that under Daesh, under ISIS, it was very hard for the Muslims, they remained there. Muslims uh, were also victims of ISIS. They were the first one. They were only Muslims. So they were the main target. It sounds like they feel a sense of pride in the Catholic presence in the city with them saying, we want more bells, not fewer. You're undertaking this massive project to rebuild physical structures, but I imagine there's also this, is there any chance of bringing back people? Oh, you could be minister because <laughs> the ministers are always asking me this question. <laughs> Will the Christians come back? I don't know. I'm not profit. Okay. Uh, I'm have, just so preacher. they have not yet, would you say? We have, for the moment, for the time being, we only have uh, 100 families, and some of them are one single man. They are back, coming back to work and to study at the university. So for us, uh, what we are doing uh, in our project, we've got Muslims, Christians, Yazidi, Turkmen, uh, Kurdish people working all together. Can you describe the church you found when you returned? What had happened to the church? The city was destroyed 80%, the old city. So you could hardly make the difference between the street and the, the houses. Everything was mud and rubble, and in summer, uh, dust and rubble. So it was kind of brownish stuff with smells of war, you can imagine, and uh, no facility at all. But I had a feeling of gratitude to God since uh, we still had a roof on the church, unlike some others. Clearing the landmines took us a long, a very long time. We had more than around 100 uh, unexploded devices. But then we started, and our main topic is not to rebuild stones, but to rebuild trust. And when you arrive, you've got to go to the mud and start working. And starting working means starting rebuilding new or building new relationships with the people who are back there. For us, the human person is created at the, at the image of God, according to God's image. And this is our main target, to restore this image of God and to turn those places that were used as courts to hang people, to murder people, into places for light and places for life for human beings of today. So in 2021, Pope Francis made the extraordinary decision that many of his advisors did not want him to make. So his first international trip after the COVID-19 pandemic was to Iraq. Were you there during that oh, time? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, because when I left my previous uh, position, he told me, you will not get rid of me. I will try to visit you. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. Actually, I was very pleased to welcome the Pope in, uh, in Mosul. We were a very small number because it was still locked down, total lockdown. And uh, so cool few even people uh, couldn't uh, get out of uh, their houses, except that when you've got nine kids, you push them <laughs> in the street to play football. <laughs> Can you describe some of the scenes of that visit? Yes. Yeah, so it was really amazing because it, it is the first time ever a pope is coming to Mesopotamia. And as I told you at the very beginning, Mesopotamia is the birthplace of humanity symbolically. So the pope started there with uh, Fratelli Tutti you see, recalling us that we share the same origin. We are from the same origin. 
Mosul wasn't cleared from explosive uh, devices. Uh, so we cleared one week before he came, uh, the site where he went. And uh, he was in the middle of the rubble. So I just want to tell you one story about that. At the very end, we had a prayer for peace and for all the victims of peace in the middle of the rubble. And then the convoy started leaving the place. It's a very narrow place, so everything was blocked. <laughs> that may happen in very official visits. And then the Pope opened the, the door and went off the car. So I, I think the sweet squad had a heart attack. And, <laughs> uh, and he saw just a family with a grandpa, no father, a very young mother and three dirty kids, very dirty and uh, poor, coming outside of the rubble. He came and just blessed them and went into his car. The convoy left. I went to the family and asked the grandpa, do you know who this man is? He said, no, but he's a man of God and he visited us. That was the heart of this trip, I think. I want to shift a little bit to the Synod on Synodality, which we're both in Rome here to participate in. I'm wondering if you had any experience with the continental phase of the Synod for the Middle East. What were some of the things that came out of the listening sessions that happened for the church there? Okay, actually, I didn't participate to the continental phase. Uh, I did the local phase with my parish because... Uh, oh, that's more interesting. I want to yeah. hear on, on the <laughs> in, ground, in the parallel lowest level. with the, all of that, so... I was the pastor of the foreigners, and uh, all of us were migrant workers, uh, but two maybe. There was a couple of Iraqi people attending to practice their English. <laughs> so uh, we were celebrating the, the Mass in English as a common, common slang in a way. But most of the people were coming from the Philippines or India-Pacific region, uh, India, Sri Lanka, uh, Pakistan, etc., so uh, I thought, okay, those people, some are struggling really to survive. They are working in difficult conditions for some of them, like uh, domestic workers, women from Africa, no support from anybody. And they may have one free day a month. Will they come for a synodal meeting? And the answer was yes. <laughs> they wanted to participate. See, in the Middle East, faith is not, uh, well, religion is not a question of faith. It's really a question of belonging. It is on your ID card. According to your father's religion is your religion. You are not really choosing. It's a question of legal system. For them, it was, okay, we belong to something or to someone, the body of Christ. And the head was really our common Eucharist. We were celebrating, sometimes struggling to to sing in the common language with the different traditions. You see, Indians and Filipinos, it's not the same at all. And the Americans in the middle, okay, looking, oh, what is this? <laughs> so do you guys make beautiful music or could that be improved, do you think? Uh, we are praying with a kind of karaoke music, you see. Karaoke so we, music. We've got some music and we are singing on the top. Uh, because none of us uh, is a good musician. <laughs> I'm sure uh, God thinks it's very yeah. beautiful. But that was very interesting to see that uh, uh, we didn't have this uh, tension between conservative and progressist, mm -hmm. because we were struggling to live our faith through Christ our Lord and through the body of Christ our Lord, really. And that was a very good experience for me. Was there one kind of common 
message or feeling that came out of your synod conversations that people wanted you to really bring to Rome and the universal church? Well, they hardly realized that I was going to Rome. For them, I was there and uh, I told them, okay, I will not be there. I will go to Rome. And they say, yeah, but next Friday, do we have mass, Father? <laughs> Okay, no, no, I will be in Rome. So, uh, oh, yeah, will you have a chance to see the Pope? Yeah, probably many times. <laughs> so, so they didn't realize that what they were saying at their level was uh, being brought to the common discernment. But I wasn't in charge of that. I was in charge of methodology, meaning how do we organize the setting, for example. The setting uh, traditionally in the Synod it's like in a university, old-fashioned university. You've got one guy speaking and 300 guys listening. And so we said, that's not what we want. If the Pope is asking for a synod on synodality, it's because we've got to adjust or to improve some things, some practices. And this is why we moved to the Paul's hall, and there we removed the chairs and put the tables for the people to be able to talk to one another, not as a master and servants, but as a friend is talking to his friend, according to the gospel. So it was, this was a very intentional decision oh, by the Methodological Commission. It too. was a fight. It was, so there was, was there, I'm, I'm learning that there is a more resistance than I thought to change here in Rome. So you're, are you saying that that was true even about the, where the furniture was going to go for the meeting? I have been in many, many international structures and I can tell you it's not only Rome. <laughs> <laughs> because it's more simple, because you've got the resources, you know the plan, etc. But it is at the service of a dialogue, a real dialogue between members of the body of Christ, all gathering because of the, their baptism. Seeing the setup of the room with the 35 tables and, and even seeing Pope Francis sit at one of those tables at some points, it's really a striking image. Has it had the effect that you wanted when you were pushing for this more horizontal layout? See, the cross has two directions, horizontal and vertical. The first thing was prayer. We insisted to have a, a retreat. So first we had verticality, but the verticality wasn't a question of power but a question of relationship to God and with God. Let us welcome the Lord first, and then we can talk to him. So it's a Eucharistic process in a way. Speaking of prayer, your brother Dominican, Father Timothy Radcliffe, was able to preach the retreat that all the delegates went on before the Synod. We're sifting through some of these. There are these beautiful meditations. What was your assessment of how he was able to set the tone for the Synod? We've got to, to remember, it wasn't only Timothy. There was Timothy on one side and the sister on the other mm. side. So two voices, two different uh, backgrounds. One is a preacher, the other one is a, is a contemplative nun. Timothy has been my boss as master of the order. So. <laughs> <laughs> but not anymore. So He's you not could, anymore, you could exactly. say so. I'm free. Yeah. He's a Brit, so sometimes people are misunderstanding British uh, humor. But <laughs> when uh, he's drafting something, he's listening quite a lot. I tell you a story. The first time I went to the general career, I was a young friar. I was a little bit afraid to see those very prominent figures. And uh, I thought, okay, it would be very formal. And then... I saw the master of the order. You have been his Dominican habit. He looks like more, more like a Franciscan at the end of the... Uh, a little bit brownish because he's... It's dirty. Yeah, exactly. He's he a guy a who week. is not afraid of dust. <laughs> and we are created from mud. So Timothy is starting with humanity. When I first arrived, he told me after the, the lunch, 
oh, Olivier, would you like to pray the rosary with us? And I thought, no, my God, no, I don't want. I want to go to sleep. I'm exhausted. And then he said, you should. And then I, I followed him because he was a master of the order and I was just a young brother. And then we arrived. It was a good on, career move, yeah. by the way, to just listen to that. We arrived on the terrace on Santa Sabina from where you've got a wonderful view on the Vatican. And then he said, you can have a coffee or a drink. And there was a full collection of many local drinks uh, from all the places uh, where the order is settled. And then he started... Wait, wait, wait. Like alcoholic drinks also? Yeah, also. So you, yeah. everywhere you... Sorry, I'm just fascinated by this. And I need, <laughs> I need an invitation. So you have a bar up there with no, drinks from a... No, there is not a, a bar. It's a, the terrace is in the closed part, only for the friars. But uh, you can okay. be a special guest, uh, even uh, being in a Jesuit program. <laughs> <laughs> and so Timothy was inviting uh, me, like all the, the friars and the guests passing by, to dialogue on the topics he was writing on. And I realized that when I saw his socius or his deputy taking some notes. And then I found some of the images of my life with my people in the letter to the other. So Timothy is first contemplating. You know, one of the mottos, and I'm sorry to say that in a Jesuit program of the Dominican order, is contemplate and preach what you have to contemplate it. So I think this is what Timothy wanted to propose to the Synod. First, start to contemplate. And there are many ways. You listen to the word of God and you contemplate the face of your neighbor created at the image of God. This is what he did. You mentioned British humor and we've touched a bit on the rift between Dominicans and Jesuits. Yeah, <laughs> our say, best enemies. I, <laughs> I laughed out loud when Father Radcliffe in one of his speeches had a list of people in the church who are marginalized and excluded. And it was like polygamous people, <laughs> Africans, Jesuits. Yeah. <laughs> a nice so I'm wondering, you know, can you reveal anything about the tensions between the Dominicans and Jesuits in the synod process? Well, <laughs> in the synod process, there is none. <laughs> <laughs> Father Olivier, thank you so much for coming on and spending some time with us. We have one more question for you that we ask everyone that comes on the show. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, Dominican or Jesuit, who would it be and why? I would say a young woman I met when I was a novice. I was asking myself about my vocation and it was a hard time. And uh, this lady, she was 20 something and she was dying. And uh, she heard that I was a, a Dominican and she stopped me. She was very angry about dying at this age. And uh, she told me, oh, you are from this little church next to the university. I said, yes, I'm from there. And she said, I'm dying. And she told me, okay, once I entered this church, just because I was curious, I wasn't practicing, etc. And uh, I heard you guys singing Alleluia. Now, when I'm thinking about God and willing to talk to God, this is the link between God and me. Alleluia. Hmm. May she pray for us. Father Olivier, thank you so much for all the time you spent with us today and best of luck in your new appointment at the École Biblique. Thank you and may God bless you. Thank you so much.
All right, now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. So just one quick thing this week uh, in our secret Patreon feed. We've got our second bonus episode from Rome where we're joined by our colleague Sebastian Gomes and Colleen Dully to talk about the Vatican's media strategy around the Synod. Pope Francis has asked for all of the participants to do a fasting from public words. And it's really meant that people really aren't talking to the media that much. So we talk about what that experience has been like, what are the risks of it, um, why Francis might have asked for this. So there's a sample of that in this main feed. Um, it's right under this episode. And if you want to listen to the full thing, you can join everybody that's supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And this week, Zach, we, we found God in the catacombs. Yes, in the deep, dark <laughs> tunnels of the catacombs. They're, they're pretty spooky down there, mm -hmm. right? So backing up, the Synod participants were asked to go on a pilgrimage to the Roman catacombs. And so Ashley and I went along as part of the media. But we got to actually go down into the catacombs with a guided tour. Yeah, we very much were a part of the pilgrimage. We weren't really reporting on it in so much as participating with them. Yeah, yeah. And I, what were your impressions of that? It was really cool. It was a cool experience to be a part of the synodal journey in a more concrete way, literally walking with these bishops and cardinals and lay people. We actually had Cardinal Stephen Chow, the Jesuit archbishop in Hong Kong. He was a part of our group. So just walking with him in this place where um, many persecuted Christians have been laid to rest was a really powerful experience. Yeah. And it seemed that the organizers of the pilgrimage were trying to get the synod participants to remember sort of the, the faith that had been handed down to us by the people that used to gather in these catacombs. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a scripture reflection also this week for America on the feast of St. Ignatius of Antioch, who is this super important figure in the history of the church. But uh, what I was thinking about was he's one of the first people that became a Christian in the generation that didn't know Jesus personally. And so um, it's widely believed that he knew the Apostle John, but he himself didn't know or meet Jesus. And I was just thinking about all the people that gathered in those catacombs didn't know or meet Jesus. And they relied on faith that had been handed down to them from some of those, those believers. And like, obviously that's how we all experience faith, right? But I can't imagine what it would have been like to you know, be the first customers, so yeah. to speak. And and to live that faith at a time when it could mean risking your life. And for many people, it did. Yeah, that's right. And, and so I don't know if I'm connecting this to too much, but like with the synod, you know, all these synod participants are supposed to be ambassadors of the spirit of synodality when they go back to their own homes. But one of the things I've been worried about is, are they going to be able to do that? Because right now, the only people that really know what's happening in that room are those 400 people, right? And so are they... I'm just worried that they're not going to be able to be those ambassadors. But mm -hmm. I think God put me on the calendar for the scripture reflections for a reason this week and reminding myself that like, look, when things were way harder for Christianity to spread, there were people that were able to hear this story about this guy named Jesus and willing to change their lives radically because of it. So listeners, maybe you can think about uh, someone in your own life who shared the good news with you. And just like us, you weren't there, but because they were changed by their belief and their faith, they became witnesses and ambassadors of that and shared that with you. All right, let's get out of here, Ashley. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our sound engineer this month is Frank Tucson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on X and on Instagram at Jesuitical Show. 
You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded this month in the eternal city of Rome. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you soon.